Many years ago, I was known as Mike Tyndall's father. Oh, he was known as John Tyndall's son. Then I became known as Mike Tyndall's father. And now today, I'm more regularly known as Nigel Stokes' father-in-law, <laughs> gradually slipping down the field of recognition. We're going to look at some of Luke chapter 22. If you've got um, a Bible, please look at Luke 22, or be looking at page 3 of your notice sheet. One of the, um, the great uh, unique features, I think, of biblical religion is that it communicates to us largely through story. I remember my early months at Theological College um, having to work my way through a book called The Philosophy of Religion. Uh, I was supposed to read 15 pages a week. That may not sound very much, but I had to read it with the book in one hand and the dictionary in the other. And uh, I had to prepare for this class led by the principal, Raymond George. Now, I've never walked through quicksand wearing those lead boots that deep-sea divers wear, but reading that book must have been a bit like that. I had to learn about a priori and a posteriori reasoning. I had to learn terms like empiricism and logical positivism. And when you, when you were born and bred in the north, in northeast Manchester and you left school when you were 16, it was really hard. But when you come to the Bible, you find it's full of stories that are simple enough, simple enough for a child to understand and enjoy, and it's also that these stories are also deep enough for the greatest human mind to get lost in. So the God of the Bible, for instance, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the story of Abraham going up the mountain to sacrifice his son, uh, looking at the stars and being told that uh, his offspring will be more numerous than the stars in the sky. Uh, the God of the Bible is the God of, uh, of Isaac, who labored uh, for his bride, Rachel. He's the God of Jacob, who wrestled with a divine person on a riverbank. He's the God of Moses and the burning bush, the God who sent his prophet into the land of Egypt to uh, inflict plagues upon the God, upon Pharaoh and his government and upon the gods of Egypt. He's the God who, of Moses who led them through the, uh, through the Red Sea, piled up in two great walls into the wilderness and to the promised land. And the, the God of the Bible is known to the Jews as I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It is phenomenally, the Bible, it's a storybook and so much of its uh, truth is caught up in stories. So the God of the Bible is the God of history and he's revealed in the mighty acts of, uh, of the scriptures. One of the greatest, of course, I've already alluded to it, one of the greatest of his mighty acts was the exodus, the exodus of his people from Egypt. They've been there for 400 years hard to imagine 400 years isn't it they've been in the they've been in the um, in in the land of slavery for as long as we have been post uh, almost post the battle of hastings which is i think some famous anniversary at the moment is there 450 years is it this year the battle of hastings 
Well, anyway, they grew, they grew from 70 souls to a nation of over 2 million. They were turned in that process into a cheap labor force. They were the immigrants who were driving down the cost of wages. They were oppressed. They were the objects of genocidal legislation. They were the slave engine of the, uh, the house of a pagan power of unimaginable greatness. And there they were in this terrible situation. They cried out to the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And he came to their help. And help came to the Jews in Egypt in the form of a shepherd called Moses. Who was also a great prophet. And God used him to send a message to the Egyptian rulers. You must let my people go. And if you don't, if you continue to harden your hearts, I will send upon you a series of plagues that will be destructive. And Pharaoh hardened his heart, he was stubborn, until eventually the last plague, the tenth plague, came in the middle of the night, and it was the worst of all imaginable plagues. It was one of the most terrible nights in the history of the world. In every home across the great land of Egypt, there was mourning. The firstborn of cattle, cows, sheep, goats and camels and the firstborn human beings died in one night. Within the space of a few hours, almost every home in Egypt was grieving with great loss. The angel of death came to inflict judgment on the whole land. This was the land that had sought to spill the blood of every male child of Jewish families. We don't know how many little babies were killed in that genocidal legislation, but they were to be killed and their bodies thrown into the river Nile as a sacrifice to the God of the Nile. And now the blood of those infants was crying out and the angel of death had come to inflict judgment upon the whole land. And every house in Egypt, Jew and Gentile, was to be judged. It was a terrible night. Every house was to be judged except those that were protected by the blood of a lamb painted on the doorposts of the house. Now these houses were protected the angel of death passed over. That's why it was called the Passover night. They were protected not by Jewish racial characteristics, not by religious prayers, not by any kind of magic. They were protected by lamb's blood. A few days later, all the inhabitants, the Jewish people, and many of those who had aligned themselves with them, walked out of Egypt on dry land through the Red Sea, piled up in great heaps on either side, into the wilderness and towards that land that God was going to give them as an inheritance. And one of the songs that the Jewish people were to sing was the praise of the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt and spared them in the Passover. So if you want to understand something profound about the God of the Bible... You have to understand the phenomenal importance of the Passover. It identifies so many things in the biblical story. Now I want to introduce you to three sets of people here in Luke chapter 22. 
And I want you, first of all, to meet the hard-hearted rulers. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death, for they feared the people. Here's a group of hard-hearted people. They're afraid of losing their power because of the influence of a, a Jewish son, of a Jewish mother. And sadly, we discover that it's not some pagan ruler like Pharaoh who's hardening his heart and plotting destruction. It's the religious leaders of the nation that believes the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, to be the word of God. It's not Pharaoh who's doing this. It's the Jewish leaders. They're acting like Pharaoh in the Exodus. They want to solve the problem of getting into potential trouble with the Romans by getting rid of the man they think is the chief troublemaker. Jesus the Nazarene. Look at verse 2. They were seeking how they might put him to death for they were afraid of the people. Now, the God of the Bible has purposes of love towards his people. His purpose from eternity past to eternity future is to gather for himself a people who will live for his glory. He chose a people before the world was made. He sent his son into the world to redeem that people. He sent his spirit into the world to call those people out of darkness into marvelous light. And he keeps on working in those people until he brings them eventually to glory. And in that extraordinary process, the God of the Bible makes everything fulfill his purpose. And he makes some of the most amazing things accomplish his purpose of salvation. In Moses' day, God used the hard-heartedness of the Pharaoh to accomplish his purposes of salvation and judgment. The most powerful man of the day exercised his power against the God of the Jews and succeeded only in accomplishing God's purpose of salvation. And it's the same here in Luke chapter 22. These rulers who are plotting to get rid of Jesus are actually only going to succeed in advancing God's plans of salvation. This is one of the most amazing aspects of the biblical story. So that's the first, um, the first person I would like you to meet. Meet the hard-hearted rulers. I'd like you secondly to meet the Satan-centered betrayer. Meet the Satan-centered betrayer. Verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. Who was of the number of the twelve. This is another amazing thing. Satan entered into Judas. This is, uh, for me, I don't know how you find this, it's one of the mysteries of Scripture. A man here is freely making his choices. He chooses to make some money out of betraying his friend. It doesn't say so here, but we know he sold his friend for 30 pieces of silver. He's been in the company of Jesus for three years or more. He's seen the character of a man who exhibits in every department of his life the holiness of God. 
He's seen miracle after miracle flowing from the hands of this king. He's been loved with a love that no one has ever really surpassed in its beauty and in its depth. He's been loved by the Son of God for more than three years. He's heard the greatest preacher who's ever lived. He's heard him personally delivering some of the mightiest sermons the world has ever known. He's, he's been the object of this love and he's, he's, he's observed this purity. And now for 30 pieces of silver, he's going to sell his friend. And it was his choice. He chose to do it. No one forced him. No one twisted his hand up his back. No one held his kids hostage. He did it because he wanted to do it. And he chose to do it because he allowed Satan, the Lord of darkness, to invade his mind and heart. You know, Satan can't just take over a human personality. He can't just decide to walk into a human um, person and take over. He can only enter into a heart when a door is opened or when he's invited. And he enters when we give ourselves over to our addictions and our greed, when we give in to temptation, when we allow our appetites, the things we want, to dominate us rather than us controlling them. And, and the more he gets hold of uh, our choices, the deeper his influence upon us gets. He'll take more and more influence over our inner world until we pretty well just follow whatever suggestions he makes. So somehow Judas allows his heart to become more and more dark. He chooses to slip out of the light into the fellowship of darkness. And the result is a heart that is so dark that it will sell the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver. It will choose money over a relationship with Jesus Christ. One of my earliest uh, influences was a Methodist preacher called Dr. William Sangster. And I have a, several books of sermons of Sangster. He says about um, Judas Iscariot, he says you wouldn't sell a dog you loved for 30 pieces of silver. You wouldn't sell a dog you loved for 30 pieces of silver. Friends, nobody ever lost their faith by accident or compulsion. If someone here is in the process of losing their faith, it's because of a series of choices that you make. It's because of neglect or choices fueled by laziness or choices fueled by greed. I want this more than I want Jesus. Satan does not have enough power to take faith from anyone. He can't do it. He is described in the Bible as like a, a roaring lion that, that goes around seeking whom he may devour. But the Bible also says if you resist him, he will flee from you. Not just slink off into the darkness. Resist him, he will flee from you. But Judas became what he became and he did what he did by a series of choices. We don't know what they all were. 
But it ended in him exchanging Jesus for a few additions to his bank balance. And everybody here is capable of doing the same. Everybody. We can all begin to make a few bad choices here and there, small at first, but when they become habitual, you're in trouble. We excuse them because we've been hurt. Somebody in the church has hurt us. Things have been said to us that have wounded us deeply. Things haven't turned out in life as we thought they should. Things have turned out in such a way that we've been hurt and we're, we're suffering, we're, we're struggling and somehow we, we, we begin to blame God and we begin to move away from affection towards him and eventually we give up Jesus and we give up God and we give up the church for something equivalent to 30 pieces of silver. And everybody here is capable of doing that. A series of self-centred, Satan-inspired choices that end us with rejecting the Lord Jesus. And here's the mystery. Here's the mystery. What Judas did out of free choice, just following his heart, just letting his choices become habitual, was an instrument in the hands of God that brought about the death of the cross and the salvation of billions of people. Now during this Passover time here in Luke 22, Jesus became the Lamb of God whose blood can save us from judgment. And God accomplished that tremendous purpose through the hard-heartedness of Jewish rulers and the betrayal of one of Jesus' friends. God uses all sorts of stuff to accomplish his purpose. So meet the hard-hearted rulers, meet the Satan-centered betrayer, and thirdly, meet the love-centered lamb. Meet the love-centered lamb, verses 15 to 23. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so on. They took the cup after supper. You know, back in, um, in Luke chapter 9, I don't know if you remember, but back in Luke chapter 9, it seems quite a long time ago now, but back in Luke 9, when Jesus was on top of a mountain, two men appeared to him as the, the, the cloud of God's glory came down upon the mountain. One was Moses, the other was Elijah, two great prophets the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, his true glory began to shine out from inside and even through his clothes and through his skin so that the disciples saw Jesus and, and something coming from inside him that was flashing as brightly as lightning. That's what the original Greek actually says. His clothes began to flash like lightning. 
So here he is, and he has conversation with these two Hebrew prophets, Moses and Elijah. They've come from beyond the grave. They've come back to, to discourse with the Son of God about something obviously of tremendous importance. Um, and Luke says what they came to talk to him about was his exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. His exodus. The Lord Jesus Christ was going to come down this mountain. He was going to engage in a journey that would take him to the death of the cross. And on the cross, he would accomplish an exodus. What God did through Moses in bringing the children of Israel out of Egyptian slavery to a new inheritance in Canaan, Jesus was going to do for you. He's going to lead you out of the slavery of sin, out of the kingdom of Satan and darkness, into his own lovely uh, love-centered kingdom. And just as God did it back in Moses' time through lamb's blood smeared on the doorpost, so in this new exodus he was going to accomplish the salvation of many through the blood shed by the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Through the body of Jesus hung on the cross. Now here it is in Jerusalem, it's a Passover meal. There's unleavened bread on the table. There's wine. There's the flesh of a lamb on the table. Verse 15 indicates the importance of all this for Jesus. Look at verse 15. I have eagerly, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer for I tell you I will not eat it again until it finds fulfilment in the kingdom of God now I can't be altogether sure of this but um, some of the scholars think that there are hints here of the Nazarite vow uh, that you may remember that there's, there's a uh, room in the Old Testament law for something called the Nazarite vow. You remember Samson? Samson took a Nazarite vow. He, he was not going to have his hair cut. He was not going to touch the fruit of the vine until he had fulfilled the mission for which he became a Nazarite. The, um, t freeing the children of Israel from Philistine oppression. And you may remember with Samson that he did not fulfill his vow until he died himself so it may be that here there is a, an, an echo of the Nazarite vow, Jesus is saying I will not uh, drink this cup of wine again until the kingdom of God comes, verse 18 and uh, some of the scholars I'd leave you to think about this, some of the scholars are suggesting that Je Jesus is saying I'm going to accomplish the thing for which I have given my whole very self. And I'm not going to drink any more of this vine, this fruit of the vine, until I've accomplished the thing for which I was sent. The true Nazarite's about to undertake the great mission. The true Nazarite is about to lead billions of people out of bondage, bondage to sin, into the freedom and joy of the children of God. And uh, he's going to do it 
by shedding his blood. And he's going to lead us to a new inheritance, a new heavens and a new earth, which will be the home of righteousness. How will he do it? By shedding his blood, by giving up his body in the death of the cross. So this is the new Passover. The judgment of God will pass over you in the final and great day and even in this very day the, the judgment of God will pass over you not because you're better than other people not because you've tried hard to be a decent kind of person not because you've prayed now and then not because of anything to do with you the judgment of God can pass over you because of the application of the blood of Christ to your conscience to your personhood when you become a Christian and you tie yourself with, in submission and in trust to the death of Christ, God's judgment passes over you. And on that final day, when every one of us will stand before the Lord in the final judgment, God will welcome you into his kingdom. You will not have to pass through the judgment of sin because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. So the bread, we're going to take some bread in a few moments. The bread represents the body of the Lamb of God. And the wine represents the blood that was shed. And when you're joined to this Lamb, this Saviour, when he becomes yours and you become his, you're safe from judgment forever and you're promised a place in the eternal inheritance. All, all as a gift. The Jews on the night of the Passover. They sat there in the darkness. Chewing their lamb. Drinking their wine. Eating their unleavened bread. Dressed for a journey. They sat there in the dark. And all around them they could hear the cries and the sobbings of Egyptian mothers and fathers. But they were safe. And they'd done nothing but apply lamb's blood to their home. And that's how it works for you. And this bread and this wine is very simply uh, an ongoing reminder of the huge privilege that we have in belonging to Jesus Christ. All as a gift. That's how he saves us. And may God preserve us all from verses 22. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. Woe to that man who betrays him. The shocking thing about being a minister as long as I have is that I have seen some of the most promising Christians betray Jesus, turn their back on him sell him for something that they can get from the world, something in their ambition, something in their possessions, something in their pleasures. They've said, I would rather have this than Jesus. And they betrayed him. May God forbid that anybody here should ever betray the Son of God by choosing something pathetic in his place. 
And may the Lord keep us all from the last few verses, 24 to 27. Here are these men, they're in the presence of the greatest event the world will ever know. Here is the Son of God preparing to be the world's saviour. He's going to be the divine servant who lays down his life so that other people can live. And what do they do? They argue about which of them is the greatest. Which of you is the greatest here? Which of you deserves more attention than anybody else gets? Which of you feels exalted enough to look down upon the others and criticise them and talk about them behind their back? Which of us has not been guilty of this? Of wanting to be served rather than to serve? Because we, we think these other people at the Emmanuel Epsom, they're not giving me what I think I deserve. There are more people that I've known over the years who've abandoned the church because they don't feel that other people have served them as well as they deserve. It's a monstrous thing. When we come to this Lord's table, we're, we're looking, we're remembering the work of the greatest servant who's ever lived. And he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He deserves to be served like nobody else. And he gave his life as an act of tremendous service. So as we come to bread and wine, the great question is, has this sacrifice made us servant-hearted? Has it made you servant-hearted? Some of the greatest words in the world are found in this chapter. Can you see them? And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it, verse 19, and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. For you. And for me. So may the Lord help us to be motivated, moved, directed by the, the Passover lamb who gave himself for us.